Acts 13. Lord willing, time willing, we're going to do the end of Acts 13 from verses 13 through uh, 52. We have a lot of things to hear that we're going to talk about. We're talking about Paul and Barnabas being on the first missionary journey that they're going through. So it's neat to see what God has in store with this. This is also Paul's first message in the book of Acts. As we get a chance to really study this and read this, we get a chance to see how Paul presents the truth, how Paul presents that through his own personality and obviously through the leading of the Holy Spirit there. And it's a message that is a great, what I call, build-up message. It starts with the history of what was happening with, with the Jews, then it introduces Jesus, then it gets to the key point here of this idea of forgiveness of sins. So that's kind of the build-up that we're going to have here this morning as we go through, through this. So without much further ado, Acts 13, pick it up here in verse 13. It says, Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up in motion with his hand, saying, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. Now, a couple of things here. First off, the way it worked back during the New Testament times is if you would go to a synagogue and you were a visitor from another area, they would give you the opportunity to get up and share. So after the reading of the Law and Prophets, they would kind of say, hey, does anybody have anything here they would like to share? And that's how Paul gets this open door to do this. But before we get to that, we need to backtrack a little bit here. Alan, if you want to put up that first slide. You know, it's really interesting when you start reading all these towns here in verse 13. They sail from Paphos, they come to Perga, to Pamphylia, etc. You hear those words, and your mind just starts to wander so, real quick, as you can see here, the red is them going on their missionary journey, how they take off. They go to Paphos that we just talked about. They sailed over to Perga. And you can see the red here. This is where they're at. They're down at Cyprus, taking off from Cyprus, heading back up to the mainland. And then the blue line is them coming back. And that's what's going to be happening here in Acts 13 and also in Acts 14 as well. This is Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. So, a little bit of background there. Now... Interesting point about this in verse 13. John departing from them. We mentioned this last week just a little bit. We were introduced to John Mark. Now, John Mark is what I call a minor character in the Bible that plays a very major role. We believe he's the one that wrote the Gospel of Mark through the leading of the Spirit. But he has this very interesting role here that happens. Now, he was related to Barnabas. And so you see him being with Barnabas. He goes, but verse 13, he leaves. Now, he doesn't just leave. It seems like when he left, there was an issue that popped up with this. Stay in the book of Acts. Just jump ahead to chapter 15 real quick. Stay in Acts and just go to chapter 15 real quick. As Paul and Barnabas get ready to take off for their next missionary journey, this issue pops up. Verse 36 of Acts 15, it says, Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them. John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren and the grace of God. You see the split happening over John Mark. Now, we don't know exactly what John did, but he left. Seems like he quit halfway through. And Paul didn't like that. I think Paul's the type of guy that you would want a Paul to be in your church. He, he would know the Word of God. He would teach the Word of God. He would be strong in that theology. He would be a solid foundation to your church. 
But I don't think Paul would have many friends in church. I don't think he was the warm, fuzzy type of guy. And I could see Paul basically saying, John Mark, we gave you a shot. You wanted to tag along with me on this missionary journey? You did halfway through. You quit. I'm not taking you again. And it becomes this big debate. Now, we'll get to in a couple weeks here, believers and contentions and arguments and how we're supposed to handle it. But at this point, John left. Now, we know it ends well. Because Paul writes later on in the New Testament, bring John Mark with you because he's useful to me. Obviously, there was peace that were made. But at this point, this is the beginning of a contention that's going to cause a church issue here in just a couple chapters. So, what happened? We don't know. John jumped ship. Here's the thing about this. Ministry. These are my two little catchphrases I always say. Ministry is not for the faint-hearted. And ministry is not for the thin-skinned. And this may be why some of you say, I don't go into ministry. You've got to remember, according to the New Testament, every member of the body of Christ is a minister. That word minister has come to mean in the 21st century pastor. That, that's, that's not what it means. To minister literally means to serve. So when the Bible says that you're a minister, it means that you're a servant. All of you are called into the ministry. I don't know what ministry you're called in, but all of you have been called into the ministry to serve the Lord. You you can't get out of it. If you say, I'm not called into the ministry, then you're really on thin ice there because part of being with Christ is being called into the ministry. You serve. So no matter who you are, ministry is not for the faint-hearted. It's not for the thin-skinned. Ministry is difficult. And some people jump into ministry and they jump into some type of service And about halfway through, they realize they can't handle it. And they want to jump ship. Interesting thing about wanting to quit. You have the free will to do that. No one makes you stop. There's not a verse in here where Paul said, no, John, stay. It seems to be, and this comes from even the teachings of Jesus. Hey, if you don't want to do it, I'm not going to make you do it. You're just going to miss out on the blessing of what it is. Jesus never forced anybody into service. God wants you to willfully give up and sacrifice to go do it. And boy, it's tough. And when I say ministry, it's an all-encompassing term. It may be ministry at school. It may be ministry in your marriage. It may be ministry at home. It may be ministry at work or at church. It's serving the Lord in whatever capacity He's called you to do that. What are the verses then that deal with this? Well, in Hebrews 12.12, if you're taking notes, Hebrews 12.12 says, If you're weak, it says strengthen those weak knees. I like to translate that verse, buck up. Come on. Buck up here a little bit. There's another great verse, 1 Corinthians 16, 13. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. And the King James, it reads awkward. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit ye like men, be strong. I didn't understand that. New King James was a little easier. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. My favorite translation is this. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like a man. Sometimes the best counsel you can give somebody is act like a man. Listen, and it's not being mean, but you are born again in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit chooses to live inside of you. The Holy Spirit empowers you, guides you, leads you, directs you. You have the God of the universe watching over you. Buck up. Be a man. Stand fast. We see these weak, defeated Christians a lot. And I don't want to make it sound like I got it all figured out. I had somebody ask me one time, have you ever thought about giving up? My response is generally once a week. It gets tough. 
It's not for the faint-hearted. It's not for the thin-skinned. And you see John Mark say, I'm done. I'm out of here. But you see also John Mark getting back into it. Because here's the thing. To be a born-again believer in Christ, it's impossible to sit on the sidelines and say, I don't want to get involved. Because you can impact eternity. Boy, we want to get involved. It is tough. It is difficult. Stand firm. Be strong. Strengthen the weak knees. Be a man. Because that's what the Lord has called us to. And he'll strengthen us. So, Paul now gets into his message here. And the first part of this message is the history lesson. He's setting the scene. He's talking the history background. Verse 17. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelled as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now, for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet, and afterward they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. Now, a little bit of a history lesson here. Basically, he's just telling the guys, okay, remember where we came from, guys. We're a chosen nation. We went through slavery. God redeemed us from that slavery. We had this area of judges that watched over us, and then we had a king that watched over us. He's building up to Jesus. That's what he's doing here. But he's just going through a little bit of background history to remind them, if you will. Now, two points that we can take up with this. Verse 18. Now, for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. King James says he suffered with them. God puts up with us. There's really no other way to say that. God puts up with us. We don't bring anything to the table spiritually. I still run into these believers that think the Lord used them because they're eloquent or charismatic or they're intelligent. Nobody could lead worship like them. Nobody could lead a study like them. Nobody could pray. No. The Bible makes it abundantly clear. We are all sinners saved by grace. There's nothing redeemable in us. God puts up with us. And this is what kind of bugs me sometimes. is For some reason, the world has been taught that God is this angry God that lives upstairs and just loves watching people die and go to hell. And, and I just don't see that in the Bible in any way whatsoever. If anything, I look at these verses, like verse 18, of where God puts up with us. He knows I am a spiritual train wreck of a failure sometimes. And he still says, my grace can cover that sin. That's the beautiful picture of the Lord. I don't know what your mindset of God is. If you walk in this idea of God is just waiting for you to mess up, to send you to hell, you don't understand the God of the Bible. He hates sin. Oh, he hates sin. That's why he sent Christ down down the cross for our sins. But he wants to give us grace so badly. He puts up with us. What a beautiful picture that is. Number two, look at verse 21. They got this king by the name of Saul. Verse 21 says, they asked for a king. Be careful what you ask for. See, it's an interesting chapter in 1 Samuel chapter 8. It's this three-way conversation. Israel begging Samuel for a king. Samuel goes, tells the Lord. The Lord comes back and tells Samuel, tell Israel this is what a king's going to do. And it's all bad. And ask them if they still want it. Samuel goes back and tells Israel, this is all the bad things a king's going to do. And Israel says, we still want a king. Samuel says, you have a king. His name is God. Israel says, no, we want a king in the flesh. You know what the Lord says? Let them have their king. Now, why would the Lord do that? Let them have their king. Sometimes the Lord gives us what we ask for to teach us a lesson. 
You want a king? I warned you what a king will be like. I warned you what a king will do. Take the king and learn your lesson the hard way. Now that's not unloving because if you study out the Bible, the Lord made it abundantly clear. Had made it abundantly clear not to do it. Do you have any of your kids that just have to learn the hard way? My oldest just has to learn the hard way. So, you know, the other day he said, Dad, do you care if I go catch a bumblebee? <laughs> Buddy, you know what they're going to do? I know, they're going to sting, I know. I, you don't want to do it. Do you care? You don't, you don't want do you care? Fine, go catch a bumblebee. <laughs> Called a dead one, so it kind of counts, but it doesn't count. <laughs> He's got to learn the hard way. There's another example in Numbers 11 where the Israelites are here wandering through the wilderness and they keep longing for Egypt. Remember all those whiny verses? Oh, can't we go back to Egypt? Remember how good the food was in Egypt? Remember all the good stuff in Egypt? And you just want to scream at them, you were slaves. You were slaves in Egypt. Have you ever run into a believer that kind of acts that way? Sometimes you run into these people that are walking with Christ and they so longingly talk about their old lifestyle. Oh, I can remember when we used to go do this and that. And what has happened is as years have passed, that awful lifestyle has almost become glorified. Oh, that's a dangerous place to be. So they wanted the food of Egypt. And they said, remember the meat we had. God says, oh, you want meat? He goes, I'll send you quail. And these quail, they're only going to fly about two feet off the ground. And you can collect as many quail as you want. So the Bible says these quail arrived. They collected all this quail. And you remember what happened? They ate themselves sick. And that's when God said, you sure you want what you had in Egypt? I will allow this to happen to teach you a lesson. I will allow this to happen. So, sometimes the Lord says, you begging for this? You want that? You want this so bad? I've spoken to you through my word. I've spoken to you through the spirit. I've spoken through you through different mediums here that this is not the right thing for you. But I'm still going to allow this to happen to teach you something. And that's what the Lord sometimes allows. So he said to Israel, you want a king? Fine, here's your king. You get Saul. And Saul is the best worldly king you can ask for. Literally tall and head and shoulders above everybody. Strong, charismatic. He's a king. He was a successful earthly man, a failure of a spiritual man. So what happens next? Verse 22, when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king. To whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who would do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise God raised up for Israel, Savior, Jesus. See how he works Jesus in there. Here's your history. This is what it was like, Israel. You wanted a king. You eventually got a king in David. And it's through David, the king you love, we now have Jesus. Verse 24. After John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. So we had Saul, who was the world's king, tall, strong, powerful. You had David. I think if we could go back in time and see David in the flesh, I think we'd say, David? This is the guy that killed the lion, the bear, killed Goliath, that slain the ten thousands? David? The key, though, is verse 22, a man after God's own heart, a man that desired the things of God. Simply ask yourself this, are you a man or a woman after God's own heart? Are you desiring the things of God? I see people 
that desire financial success. I see people that desire physical success. I see people that desire all these different things. But are they after the things of God? Basically, the Bible keeps talking about how we're running a race. And the question that they ask yourself is, what race are you running? I mean, what is your goal? What is your finish line in life? To be financially stable? Okay, fine, you get it. That could be gone in a heartbeat. Then what are you going to do? What's your goal in life? To be in the best shape you've ever been? Okay, fine, you get that. You're still going to get old. I mean, what is the goal? The goal has to be a spiritual goal of seeking the things of God. Any other goal in life will lead you to disappointment and discouragement. Now, you may have some fun reaching that goal, and you may have some fulfillment when you get that goal, but that goal is an earthly goal that will not last through all of eternity. That's why we need to be men and women after God's heart, after the things of the Lord. Simply ask yourself, how much time and energy do you put in your life for things that are not eternal? That you are shooting for these goals and running this race that really is not going to fulfill you for all of eternity. We've got to be careful about that. David is the example of seeking the things of the Lord. And that's what matters more than anything. Verse 26. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. Now he brings it to you. Guys, you know our history. You know David. Jesus came from David. Now... This idea of salvation is for you. He's going to use this word fulfilled numerous times. Because now his point is to say, Christ fulfills all these promises of God. Verse 27. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them. Jesus has fulfilled prophecy in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled, there it is again, all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are witnessing witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, the promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled, again, this for us, their children, and that he has raised up Jesus, as is written in the second psalm. So he says, here's all the fulfillments of Jesus. Now I'm going to give you the scriptures that show it. Verse 33, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation, by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. So basically, his teaching point is this. Guys, I've introduced you to Jesus. Jesus fulfills all the prophecies. And those prophecies can't be about David. Because those prophecies are about a person not seeing corruption, not decaying, not dying. Where Jesus can only fulfill those because he died but rose again. Where David, he's still dead. These fulfilled prophecies have to be about Jesus. And it has to be about the Messiah. He's trying to show them what this truly is. And he wants to tell them this. That's why he comes to you in verse 32. We declare to you glad tidings. Some of your translation says, good news. Glad tidings, good news. Paul says, I'm here to tell you the good news. Now think about this, guys. We, we know heaven, we know hell, we know eternity. We have the good news of the gospel. We have the glad tidings of the gospel. Why aren't we proclaiming this more? And I don't say this to pick on you or to make you feel guilty. I, I'm asking, why don't we? 
We will have all these silly, dumb conversations about weather and sports and life, but yet we have the glad tidings of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we're not ever once stopping and saying, Lord, please work this into the conversation. Lord, please open a door today that I can really share something. I'm not saying you have to go force it open. I'm not saying you have to make it happen. I've seen Christians do that. That's not fruitful. Pray, Lord, open up the door. Lord, steer the conversation towards you. Lord, show me. Show me what you want us to do. It's fascinating. This is the thing that we try to train our boys to do. And they are so ingrained into this. So ingrained. That if they go to a playground or a park or something like that and they meet somebody, Hi, what's your name? Get their name. Their next question is, Do you know God? Now, they've been trained to do that. Who trained them to do that? I did. So why don't I do that as much as I should? We were driving someplace just last week, and we were driving by our, our old house, and we saw one of our old neighbors, and I said to the boys, Hey, boys, that's so-and-so, the neighbor that we used to live by. And so Kenan's first question is, Does she know God? I said, I, I don't know. So, Dad, ask her. Well, he just told me to stop and roll down the window and just say, Hey... So-and-so, do you know God? But in their mind, that's how simple it is. Now, as an adult, I overanalyze it. So this has really been heavy on my heart, saying, Lord, if I have this glad tidings, if I have this good news, why am I wasting so many silly conversations where, Lord, really I want you to be the central focus of what I say and what I do? So, look for those opportunities. We were at Ron's the other day, and I was with the boys, and they were in the vehicle, and I was getting them some ice cream and some stuff like that. And it was just me, and then there was this other guy that showed up. And you know how there's that awkwardness of just two people standing there waiting for ice cream. So the society we live in, you do the quick casual hello, and then you usually pull out your phone and look at it, you know, to waste time. So I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, Lord, it's just him and I. Open a door. And, and so I felt like, okay, what do you do? So I'm, I'm, I'm checking this guy out, and I don't mean that the way it sounds. I'm looking, and okay, Lord, there's got to be a way here. To, to open up this conversation and just see what happens. Maybe the Lord will open a door, maybe not, I don't know. And so I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, okay, what can I talk about? And this guy is just completely covered in tattoos. He's completely covered. So I'll ask him about his tattoos. That's what I'll do. So he, he had tattoos up here to his hand. And so I stopped and I said, I, I see your tattoos there, man. I said, did that hurt? You know, when, when you got that done, there's not much flesh. So he's telling me, He's telling me about his tattoos. I'm telling him about my tattoos. And we're just kind of having this conversation. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I was telling him about Dawn's tattoos. You know? um, so I'm trying to say, how do we work this in? So I said this, because I've talked to some of you gals out here at church that have tattoos on the feet. And I said, oh, you know, we got these gals at church that have tattoos on the feet. And I said, the one gal told me one time that it hurt worse than childbirth. And so I'm just trying to see where the Lord, you know, took the conversation. I would like to say it went really deep and spiritual, but it didn't. But I thought, I just want to be available. I did get this out of it. He calls me chief. You know, <laughs> I was good talking to you, chief. So uh, I don't know what he thinks, but um, we'll see. It's just being open. It's just being open. And, and I try to stop and say, Lord, when I run into somebody, is this an opportunity to say something? And if we're just having a casual conversation, in the back of my mind, I'm just saying, Lord, bring you into this. Just bring you into this. And just see where the Lord goes with it. Because I have the good news. I have the glad tidings. And I look back at how many conversations I have wasted in my life, never once thinking, Lord, I want this to become a spiritual conversation. And boy, and I'm wrong for that. 
And I look at the good news here, and I'm saying, isn't the whole goal, isn't the whole goal of why we're here is to make disciples? I mean, that's been our theme here for the book of Acts, is we are disciples. We are followers of the teachings of Jesus Christ. And disciples make disciples. Matthew said that. He said, go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. So as a follower of Christ, as a disciple, I want to go make more disciples. But yet, I look at my life, and I look at the goals I've set up, I look at the finish line I've set up. Making disciples isn't one of those goals. Lord, help me to change my mindset. That I really want to impact eternity in all that I do and all that I say. That wherever this person is at, I want to preach to them and show them the gospel. Because look at verse 38. Look how Paul brings this back. Verse 38 now. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. Right? There's the key. The whole buildup of this lesson, the history lesson, Saul, David, Jesus, fulfilled prophecies, comes to verse 38, that you can have forgiveness of sins. That's the whole point. There is a sin problem that has to be dealt with. Has to be dealt with. If that sin problem is not dealt with, then what are we doing? Sometimes as Christians, we have this tendency to water down the gospel to this idea of, God just cares for you and loves you, and He has this wonderful plan for your life. And that is all true. All true. But there's this sin issue that has to be dealt with. We're all sinners that need forgiveness. We have to talk the truth of the reason Jesus... Jesus did not die on the cross for me to have a wonderful life. He died on the cross to take care of my sins. And we've got to remember that. Verse 39, and by him everyone who believes is justified. Justified is a fancy word. I heard a pastor say one time, it means just as if I never sinned. That idea of just being made clean. Justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Be, beware therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold you despisers, marvel and perish. For I will work a work in your days, a work which you by no means believe, though one word declare it to you. Paul says, here's the truth of it. He goes, be careful though. He goes, don't reject this truth. Because if you reject this truth, you're rejecting salvation. The importance of knowing that. What's the response? Verse 42. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words may be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. Real quick, you got to remember this. In the world, there's two groups of people. You're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. So, we're Gentiles because we're not Jewish. The gospel came to the Jews. Those are God's chosen people. And what you see here in Acts 13 is a very important point. The Jews have almost, dare we say, officially rejected that gospel. And so now the Lord says, fine, you don't want the truth of the gospel. I'm going to start taking the gospel to the Gentiles, which is us. Now, this doesn't mean that the Jews are no longer important. I cannot stress this to you enough. Romans 9, 10, and 11 make it abundantly clear that Israel is still God's chosen people. It's not that we are the people now. 
The Bible says, if anything, Israel is the tree and we're grafted into them. This is what I always say. The real party starts when Israel knows the gospel. For right now, the focus is on the Gentiles. And this, there's word that was used right here in verse 45, filled with envy. In Romans 11, Paul uses the word jealousy. God says, hey, Gentiles, I'm going to use you to make the Jews jealous. Isn't that interesting? It's an awful analogy, and I don't mean it exactly the way we say it. It's almost like the boyfriend showing off the new girlfriend to the old girlfriend. Saying, hey, look at the Gentiles here. Why would the Jews be jealous of us? Well, the Jews are jealous of us because, well, first off, we take for granted why they should be jealous. Think about this. You're having a problem today. Guess what you can do? You can go right to God anytime you want. You you are struggling with something. You're worried. You're fearful. You're anxious. You can go straight to the creator of the universe without any problem in any way whatsoever. You, You do something wrong. You can have immediate forgiveness through, Lord, I'm sorry. Jump back a few thousand years ago. You screwed up. You got to go get the lamb. You got to kill the lamb. You got to take the lamb to the temple. Wow. We can go to God any time we want. Jews? No, they couldn't. Day of Atonement, one day a year, one person could have access to God. We have boldness, Hebrews says, to boldly go to the throne of grace. We have this immediate access to God. A relationship with Him that was not in the Old Testament. That is a jealousy and envy of we can say, yes, you are God's chosen people, Israel. But until you know Jesus, you cannot have this access to God like we do. And so therefore, it's supposed to make them jealous. It's supposed to make them envious. Now, a couple other points that we see here. Look how they desire this. Look at the response to these guys. Verse 42, begged that these words might be preached to them. Verse 43, following Paul and Barnabas around. Verse 48, Glorifying the word of the Lord was spoke to them. If somebody really wants to know Christ, they're going to put that effort into it. And they're going to be blessed by it. I hear way too often somebody saying, fill in the blank, my cousin, my brother, my sister, my friend, they really want to know God. And can you talk to them? And my response is always, send them, invite them out to church, give them my number, have them contact me. No, can you contact them? I'm not opposed to contacting them. I'm not opposed to spreading the gospel. But if somebody is really interested in the gospel, they're going to put that effort into it. See, I used to think as a pastor, it was my job to be the spiritual drill sergeant, to force people to grow deeper in their walks with the Lord. If you desire to go deeper in the walk with the Lord, you're going to do it. I don't have to convince you of that. You will be just like them. You will beg, verse 42, to hear more about God. Verse 43, you will follow the teaching. Verse 48, you will glorify that the word of the Lord has been taught. I remember when I first got saved. You know, that idea of your Bible. You always, always knew exactly where your Bible was because you never let it out of your sight. You're always reading and looking at it. Now, after a while, you get saved. You have this conversation of, honey, have you seen my Bible? I know I brought it home Sunday from church. I think I brought it home Sunday from church. Maybe I left it in the car. And you start realizing now you can easily go a day, two days, three days, and you don't even know where the most important possession you have is at. What happened to us begging for the Word of God? What happened to us being just so thankful to hear teaching? New believers, that excitement, that joy. Wow. We need to desire the things of the Lord. We want to go after his heart. What is your finish line? What race are you running for? What is the purpose of your life? 
The purpose of your life is so simple. Number one in my life is Jesus Christ. Number two is Dawn. Number three are those boys. Number four is Harvest Fellowship. Keep it simple. Get your focus, get your preparation, and fulfill the ministry that God gave you. Now, a couple final things to say. Goes back to one of our first points. Did you catch verse 50? The Jews of the excuse me, the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men in the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from the region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and they came to Iconium. And when the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Look at those bookends right there. Opposition and then joy. Any time you desire to go deep in the Lord, be it in your life, your marriage, at home, at work, wherever it is, there will be opposition. The world will never accept a born-again, on-fire Christian. They won't. But yet we sit here as believers wondering, why is it so tough? Because you're trying to live a godly life in an ungodly world. You're trying to proclaim truth in darkness where people don't want to see it. We have to be prepared for opposition. We have to be prepared for difficulties when people say things, attack us, whatever. Even verse 50, stir up people against you. That is part of it. It goes back to those verses we said at the beginning. Strengthen the weak knees. Buck up. Be a man. Ministry is not for the faint-hearted. It's not for the thin-skinned. If you find yourself being defeated too quickly in the ministry of life for the Lord, toughen up. And I don't mean that rudely. I mean that to encourage you because you will face opposition when you try to go deeper in your walk with the Lord. But what's the result of it though? Verse 52, you're filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. There's nothing like a spiritual success. There really isn't. And I tell you, as a pastor, you see lots of spiritual successes, you see lots of spiritual failures. And those spiritual successes are amazing. And those failures just, oh my goodness, they just hurt. But the joy is what keeps you going of saying, Lord, we're impacting eternity. Last point I'm going to make. I like this phrase in Acts 13, verse 43, where he said to continue in the grace of God. Continue in the grace of God. Can you turn with me to 1 Timothy 4, please? 1 Timothy 4. 1 Timothy 4. Would you say at your walk right now with the Lord, are you continuing in the grace of God? Or have you become stagnant? Dare we say, are you even going backwards? This idea of continuing, this idea of growing in your walk in relationship with Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 15. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Look at verse 15. Give yourself entirely to the Lord that your progress may be evident. We mentioned this in just a couple messages ago. Can people see growth in you? Do people see you growing in your walk and relationship with Christ? Is that evident? Verse 16, are you continuing in the doctrine? I I see too many Christians reach a point and do what I call plateau Christianity. This kind of stop. And it's not that things are bad. I mean, it's not that, that you're doing things you shouldn't be doing. It's not that you're being this awful sinner. It's not that the marriage is awful. It's not that your service is awful. But you just kind of become stagnant. And there's this constant theme in the Bible of continued growth. 
And as believers, we need to stop and say, is there growth in my walk? Put all this passage together now. Am I desiring the things of God like David? Am I after his heart? What's my finish line in life? What race am I running? Am I trying to go deeper? Am I continuing in grace? Or am I really just stagnant? Because what happens is this. You reach a point spiritually where things are okay. No one really questions you. I mean, you know your Bible decently. You're a good prayer. You serve here and there. And you come to church. Here's the truth of it. We see each other, what, an hour or two, maybe three hours a week? Maybe some conversations here and there? You know how easy it is to fake it for that time? Are we really growing? And this is not some attack, some kick at you. It's just an honest assessment. Are you really growing? Because the whole point is to grow in the grace of God. Can you put that last slide up there, Alan? You know, this is the thing that's been on the top uh, on your bulletin here that Nancy's put on for the last few weeks. And I, and I love the simplicity of this. I love the simplicity. Is where are you at on this? You know, if you're to the left of the cross... The focus is proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ to evangelism. You need to know who Christ is. That he does bring forgiveness of sins. Then after that happens conversion. And then happens discipleship. Now, I'm not going to make any assumptions here that everybody is at the same spot. But generally speaking, probably a lot of us are on the discipleship side. Part of discipleship remembers two things. Is Number one, you are a follower of the teachings of Christ. And as a disciple, you are discipling others. And you are also being discipled yourself. That's the way the system works, according to the church. Ask yourself this. Are you, are you discipling somebody? Are you getting involved in their life and saying, let me help you go deeper in your walk with the Lord? Number two, have you allowed somebody into your life to say, I want to help you go deeper in your walk in relationship with the Lord? The more I'm out here, the more I realize how simple my job is. I want to teach the Wednesdays, I'm going to teach the Sundays, and as much as possible, as many people as I can, I want to meet with you throughout the week to encourage you to go deeper in your relationship with Christ. That, that's what it is. I think sometimes as churches and as pastors, we get caught up in way too much. I just want to disciple. I just want to see you go deeper in your relationship with the Lord. So guys, if you want to go deeper, call me, text me, email me. Let's get together and let's encourage each other to do that. Ladies, if you want to go deeper, I will gladly hook you up with some gal out here that will take you deeper in your walk and your relationship with the Lord. This is what we're supposed to be doing. If you're on the right of the cross, your job is to be making other disciples and growing deeper in your walk and relationship. There is no area on this map of being stagnant. There's not. If you have loved ones, where are they at? Are they to the left of the cross? Then your focus is salvation. Lord, I want to speak the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. Once they get converted, they're now on the right of the cross. Lord, I want to disciple them and help them go deeper in their walk in relationship with the Lord. Keep it simple. Disciples make disciples. We want to see the church grow. And I do not mean that numerically. We don't care about the numbers. Spiritually grow. We know the good news. We know the glad tidings. We know what's going on. So then we want to impact eternity more than ever in all that we say and all that we do. All the drama of this world pales in comparison to the eternity of heaven and hell. And let's keep our mind and soul focused on that and all that we say and do. Marvin, come forward here for the final song. Just remember, a lot of things coming up. Busy month of June. Garage sale giveaway coming up in a couple weeks. Also want to let you know about this as well. Baptism coming up at the end of June. If you are interested in getting baptized, please see us and let us know. We'd love to get a chance to talk to you about that. Uh, Sufficient Grace Ministries has their golf outing coming up. Church camp coming up. Uh, Sean.